This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, journalist A.B. Stoddard on The Day After and Her Dad. He said many times at that time that he was not pushing any kind of policy or outcome, but to bring Americans face to face with the horrors of nuclear war. He literally, his quote was, I wanted people to decide what they were going to do about it. He just pushed it off a building and people had to deal with the consequences. And it's fascinating that we would have a giant sit-down post-mortem after a TV show, let alone with someone from the Secretary of State. A.B. Stoddard, welcome to Chatter. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Shane, and thanks for your interest in this whole topic. Yeah, so you may not need much of an introduction to a lot of our listeners who are probably very familiar with your political writing, your journalism, the work that you've done over the years for The Bulwark, on The Bulwark podcast, writing for the site. But we're here today to talk about something a little bit different. So to introduce people to that, who was your dad and what is the project that he is so associated with that we're going to be talking about today? My father's name was Brandon Stoddard. We lost him in 2014. He was a television pioneer. He started out in advertising. He ended up in television. He started out in daytime. He moved to nighttime, to primetime, to television shows. Then he moved to what became known as the miniseries, the multi-night television program. And then he dabbled for a while in feature films. ABC actually had a four-year run during which they made six films. They succeeded at the box office, Flamingo Kid with Matt Damon, Silkwood with Meryl Streep, were several of them Pritzi's Honor. So they did quite well, but that was a limited experiment. And, and then he basically continued with the making of miniseries. And the day after is known to many Americans because it depicted the horrors of nuclear war. And that's what we're talking about here. And it's so interesting, and I know it is to you, Shane, that that there are any Americans walking around that don't know about it is still shocking to me because I feel that even if you're around, uh, you know, 20 uh, years old, the idea that your parents wouldn't have discussed this with you, that you're walking the earth not knowing that there was this television show that depicted the grisly, ghastly result of nuclear war seems strange. But there, as you know, so many things that we no longer talk about anymore, and nuclear war is one of them. That's right. And we should note for people, and I may remember that in 2022, I had a discussion on Chatter with Nicholas Meyer, who was the director of The Day After, who your father knew well and worked with, that this film, when it aired in 1983 on ABC, and it was a Sunday night, I remember it well because I watched it with my parents, was, I think, the most watched television film in history. I mean, this was an absolutely 
epic event. I mean, it was something that not only was everyone talking about, and we'll get into this a little bit later in the conversation, but it got the attention of the president of, of his administration, Ronald Reagan's administration. It was just an absolutely huge event. And you wrote a column about this back in November for The Bulwark titled, The Day My Father Scared America. So we're going to talk about your dad and his career leading up to this, but give us just a real quick snapshot of the night that that film aired, what was that like and what was your memory of what was going on in the country as this huge film aired on ABC television? Well, it remains the most watched television uh, show in history, 100 million people out of 234 million Americans at that time. And it will never be eclipsed, of course, because of the atomization of television. And now we have all these channels. So people can't really understand and appreciate, which you discussed with Nicholas Meyer, what a television event, a national event means uh, in terms of a television show. So that we would all gather around and be a part of the same experience, you know, but for the Super Bowl is really unthinkable to most Americans. The night of the day after was the culmination of agonizing months and weeks in advance of controversy and tense pressure on my father and ABC to drop the film and not air it um, from the White House and also within ABC itself. And it was going to make no money. It was going to be a disaster. People were going to be upset by it. It was too controversial. Um, They were going to lose the $7 million that they put into it. So there was the specter of it not airing. And again, really hard for people to understand that you're reading in the newspaper and hearing about on the TV news, a television show that's looming in the future next month or in a few weeks that may or be, may, might be pulled off the air. I mean, this is so strange, right, to, for people today to imagine. And for me, I was in high school and the whole school had been warned. And I was at a private girls school in New York City where we had kindergartners through 12th graders and everyone got letters in their packets, you know, to send home to parents about the warnings and whether or not that people should watch it, what age would be appropriate to watch it and, and how traumatic it was going to be. And you should watch it with your parents. And I, I agree with Nicholas Meyer that I think it's stunning that your parents let a seven-year-old watch this movie, even though they watched it with you, because it haunted the nightmares of Americans for years afterwards. And it was traumatic. And that was really the intent. And so for me, I was scared for my dad. I was scared to watch the movie. I was scared to see what it looked like. I was scared of the feeling that it was going to elicit in all of us, which we were promised in advance. You know, it would be full of really traumatizing content that we would never unsee. And then I was just so worried about my dad because he was standing on a train track, basically. I thought by himself, by going out on this limb professionally, being willing to be fired for it. And, you know, what if it didn't air? And then when it aired, what would happen? So that's my memory of just not wanting to be the controversial kid at school, not wanting any of this to really like derail my father's career. And it was a singularly strange experience because it was, it was so menacing And so my father was responsible for something that was really considered so menacing. And people are saying, why is he doing this? Why? Why? Of course, 
I asked my father that all the time. Why are you doing this? You asked him when you were in school and it was about to go on, why are you doing this? I asked him when he first told me about the idea, why are you doing this? And he said, oh, this is the, one of the most important stories that we could possibly tell. This is you know, a, a threat to the human race. We have no answers for this. People have to think about it. I mean, this was his brainchild. And so he talked to us about it. But then it was so much different once it became real, once it was a news topic, an American debate before it even aired. And then I would ask him again, why are you going to do this? Seems to be so much trouble. And, you know, his response was that it was worth it, that it was important. This is at a time when I don't think people associate television networks and kind of the movie of the week format with taking on particularly controversial or daring subjects. But this was not the first time that your dad had pioneered not only a format in television with, you know, day after was supposed to be two nights. We've talked about Nichols Meyer, but it ended up being one night. But he had waded into some really controversial and very meaningful and difficult subject material before. So rewind the tape a little bit and talk a little bit about some of your father's early experiences and some of the projects that he brought to television. So I think his singular accomplishment, the most important one, was the making of Roots. And that was in 1977. And last year was the 45th anniversary of Roots. This year is the 40th anniversary of the day after. The day after is getting some attention because of its drama because of its controversy, because we're still dealing with nuclear war. I was surprised that the 45th anniversary of Roots really did not get much attention, if any, at all. Roots was so daring. We look back now and we say, oh, well, that was just so important. I mean, it was this national water cooler. We all came together and for however many nights, we watched this beautiful story about an American family. We didn't know what was going to be going into it, but we felt so good afterwards, despite graphic, brutal beatings and whippings by white masters of black slaves. We ended up following this family into their freedom and feeling that we were having this national moment. We were galvanized into conversation from this movie and this experience and we all grappled with these difficult issues together. And wasn't that so necessary and so productive? That was the way Roots made Americans feel. It's taught in history books. Kids in school learn about it because it's so seminal and so powerful in a positive way. But on the other side of it, the decision to make it, the decision to commit ABC to this project, my father bought the rights to Alex Haley's book before he finished it. No one wanted to advertise. It was such a fly by the seat of the pants dare uh, on my father's part, but he believed so much in this story. And in the end, of course, you look back and you say, well, oh my God, it changed everything. It almost like had to come to pass. But on the front end, boy, was he facing a lot of adversity. And I think that's what kind of wet his feet for the experience of having the guts to make the day after and insist that it be aired and risk getting fired over it. I'm curious that he come to the novel roots because it was a popular novel and people were aware of it at the time. And did the success of that show 
give him a lot of credibility within ABC to take bigger risks, which ultimately pays off down the road six or seven years. Again, Alex Haley was not finished with his book. And then it was published, if I remember correctly, kind of in tandem with the airing of the miniseries, close enough. So it was not a published bestseller. But there's no question that his willingness to make ABC take this risk and have it succeed gave him a foundation for taking more risks like the day after. But even though he had all this credibility and a record of success, he talked about it in an interview years later. And he said every department in ABC was mad at him. The legal department was worried about the response from the White House. The affiliates hated it because they were getting local pressure and protests down at their stations. The programming department didn't want it. They thought there would be no ratings. The sales department didn't want it. There would be no ads. The marketing department, what, the, what were they going to market? Like a nightmare, right? So, so he was literally on an island, completely isolated, and he just did not know that going in. He thought this is a really important thing that we all share, right? It's our, all, our worst nightmare that we could blow up tomorrow. And he cited years later a, a poll, he called it a survey, that 53% of Americans believed that Ronald Reagan uh, would take us into a nuclear war and 75% of us at that time believed nuclear war would happen in the next 10 years. So this fear was so palpable. And his intention was, I've got to make everyone talk about this and think about this. And the reaction was, we don't want to. And so you can't compare it to Roots, right? He builds up this credibility. He has a record of success. He tells these guys, come on, let's do this. Television can become national events. They can produce national conversation. They can galvanize a culture. It can produce change. Let's do this. This medium that we have, let's use it wisely. And still, once they you know, dug in on the day after and they saw what it was turning into, they just freaked completely got cold feet. He put his job on the line. If they, if they didn't air it, even if the $7 million was wasted, he was going to walk. I've read that one of the things that got your father so interested in making a movie about nuclear war, which becomes the day after, was that he had seen The China Syndrome which, you know, is the movie that depicts a meltdown at a nuclear reactor. And of course, people had the experience of things like the disaster at Three Mile Island. We had not yet had Chernobyl, but Americans were aware of the nuclear threat. So what were the things on his mind? Because, you know, to decide I want to make this film, I mean, he must have been pretty deeply animated by things that he was seeing and other stories that he'd seen that were kind of on the topic. Well, I think that that's true. And then he also mentioned later that John Hershey's Hiroshima, the book was, you know, very compelling about this, Nick Myers called the nuclear Pandora's box. Who is the artist that wants to talk or write about this stuff, Mm. right? That wants to portray nuclear war. The way my father described it later was that we were living with this threat. It was so real for most of America And then there's a separate conversation we can have about the concept of a limited nuclear war, right? So that's another factor in the debate about whether we could survive it. And I think that the way he described it later was that people could not handle it. And so they just lived in denial and that he wanted to force the issue Mm. and he wanted them to 
really face it. He said, decide what they wanted to do about it. So in essence, he was pushing the horror of nuclear war because he wanted Americans to pressure their decision makers about the question of whether or not there was a such thing as a survivable nuclear war or a limited nuclear strike. And what was the purpose of all the weapons that we have that could destroy the world so many times over? And so while he said it wasn't political, he described it later as sort of this mission, and that's my word, but to force the conversation. I think we usually think of people who are involved in television production as being primarily interested in entertainment. But it sounds like your dad was pretty socially conscious and had some belief that he could use this position and this platform as directing motion pictures that go on to be seen by millions and millions of people to you know advance some kind of thinking or argument or or cause. I mean did he was he a politically active person? How did he see like his role in a company that is primarily about entertaining people, not necessarily provoking them? So that's such an important question because my father was so not political. He was a storyteller and he understood the importance of storytelling and the power of narrative and the importance of our shared humanity. He was drawn to things that you not unite us in agreement, but the unite us in our shared humanity. What connects us? And so he made many series, you know, he loved great stories, uh, the thorn birds, the, the rich man, poor man. And then he did Washington behind closed doors and winds of war. And a lot of them were important in historical context or a message about this or that, our government. But he also just loved a great, wonderful stories about love and about life and about our relationships with each other. So he was not political. He did not have an agenda. But what's interesting about the day after is he ended up hiring Ed Hume to write the day after, who admitted a week before the film aired that ABC did not know that he was a nuclear freeze advocate who was very alarmed about the, the specter of nuclear war. And he did not share that with ABC when he was hired. So a lot of people could look at the day after and accuse my father, as Jerry Falwell did, of making propaganda and having an agenda. But I can tell you personally and across his entire career, he didn't just run around making national security focused projects or movies that have a political edge. It, he loved a great story. And that came first. And he was very apolitical. And, and people may not remember, you mentioned the Thornbirds and Winds of War. These were huge miniseries when they were on. You know, in the case of the Thornbirds, like this multi-generational story. I very much remember my grandparents absolutely loving. And it was a big deal. And you're right, it was not very political. It was just more rooted in storytelling. But to kind of go back to him pioneering the miniseries, like people take this for granted now because we live in a time when we have, you know, limited series of eight episodes on Netflix or whatever. But that was a really new format when they were doing this at ABC, the idea that you would essentially do kind of a filmed version of a novel almost really, right? 
How did he get into television? He is not necessarily somebody who I think would have planned out a career in TV, right? But how did he get into it? So my father came from five generations of lawyers and he went to law school and he was on the side as he had done in college and high school acting and doing theater. And he got to the point where he kind of realized he went to his dad and he was like, I'm not going to stay in law school. And it was like really an explosive thing at that moment in my dad's life in his family to announce. But he also realized in short order that he wasn't going to make it on Broadway. So I think he kind of stumbled into advertising like, oh, well, you know, it's like what you do. And he was at BBDO, like in the Madman era. That was a pathway to TV where obviously he wanted to tell stories. And again, it's so hard for Americans to put this in context. And I wasn't an adult then, but I can appreciate it because I'm a TV pioneers kid. I mean, it was like the beginning of like the, the best of TV, right? TV was really exploding. And so... I think he was just, he saw that coming. He could see around that corner, what it could do, what the potential that TV had. And he wanted to have fun. I mean, he wanted to be a part of entertainment. He was no longer going to be an actor, but he loved a great show. This is such a cringe, like corny expression, but he was kind of like the man for that moment of that industry. So creative, knowing exactly what television could do when to take the chance on different experiments. And he just had a vision at a moment that allowed him a lot of success because he took chances that worked out. Let me read off a few more of the credits so people understand like that there is real evidence backing up what you're saying. So when he was head of ABC Entertainment, these are some of the shows that they did. Moonlighting, which introduced America to Bruce Willis, a great show with Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard, which I mean, amazing show, by the way. I mean, truly one of the funniest, smartest things that I think has been on TV in years. Roseanne, kind of a cultural milestone and marker. The Wonder Years, show everyone loves. 30-something, which was groundbreaking. Basically, there are shows that come after them that look like those shows, yes. right? They sort of break ground with genre, with subject matter, with format. 30-something is a great example of this. When he was there, they did the TV movie Friendly Fire with Carol Burnett about trying to investigate a son who was killed in a friendly fire incident in the Vietnam War. I mean, it's actually a, it's actually a movie of a book his friend wrote. Okay. It's a beautiful but Like movie. that's the time where they're attacking on, on network television, Carol Burnett doing a movie about Vietnam. I mean, that is not in the zone of what most people think is is normal TV fare. Uh, and he goes on to do things like, you know, My So-Called Life, which, I mean, again, is a groundbreaking film that introduced so many actors that are now mainstay actors, including Claire Danes, probably being one of the biggest ones. Um, so what is it like for you growing up in a house with a dad who is kind of at the epicenter of culture that way? So my dad... It's interesting. If people read about him, they will learn. He was not reveling in the Hollywood life. So he was kind of this East Coaster. Was he in L.A.? He was in L.A. My parents were divorced. I, I was with him in the summers. We would go live with him for several months. And then he was in New York a lot for work. And so we saw him all the time. And we'd spend the weekend you know, in his hotel room and we'd go to Broadway shows and 
he was a very present dad. What it was like was so interesting because of what I just noted, which is my father was not attracted to that life. He was not out of premieres. He only went to work functions that he absolutely had to. And he really avoided all of that. So there were lots of gossip and rumor. What's wrong with this guy? Why is he always like, is he gay? Like, why is he dodging these parties? Like, what's going on with him? Does he have a secret life? And it was because it just wasn't his jam. And I loved all those TV shows. That was our generation. But yeah, his work was so cool because he loved a good story. It always knew what had the potential to expand and have staying power. But then what you just mentioned about Carol Burnett, he could really understand actors and he could very much sense their depth and who would be appropriate for different roles and who could be stretched out of their comfort zone. And he really enjoyed that. There was so much about it that he enjoyed. And that was one of the things that he was just really good at. Yeah, you know, one of the things I, I, I admire about the day after as well is the technical aspects of it that are so shocking. I mean, the way they simulated a mushroom cloud, the scenes where people are vaporized and turned into skeletons and it looks like x-rays and the, the aftermath is really the production value of it, if you could call it that, it was really high. But it's just also a supremely well-acted film. I mean, the performances are excellent across the board. And there are some people who became pretty well-known actors as well, like Steve Gutenberg and John Lithgow is in it and others as well. But it sounds like your father really keyed in on this. I mean, all these shows that we are talking about are known for their acting. Right. I mean, Moonlighting is a great example of like, that's one of the great pairings in television is Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis. Was he channeling his sort of thwarted acting career into some of these projects that he worked on? I do believe so. He was just so in tune from a young age with what made a great actor. He was so appreciative of that talent and that skill, even though he thought that the life of being an actor or actress is, is like makes you nuts. You know, if you were at the point where you couldn't go to a coffee shop, I mean, he was dealing with these people all the time and not all of them stay sane like Henry Winkler. You know, my dad, I remember going to the set of Happy Days and my dad telling us repeatedly that Henry Winkler was like the unfons was the sweetest, most gentle, like low key guy, you know, but because he started out as an actor, he just really appreciated their skill and what it was like to take a new role and stretch yourself and find that role inside you and do it well. He would talk about Sybil Shepard's comedic genius. I mean, and he just knew, right? He just knew when people had the potential, they had the ability to do something that other producers and directors didn't think that they could or should. That was one of the reasons that they needed to have well-known actors in Roots as slave masters. They needed to have people that made the audience comfortable, even though they were going to be doing uncomfortable things. But yes, my father was very dialed into which actors and actresses were doing what work, what the trajectory of their careers were at that time, who, you know, had the greatness in them and who could deliver. And it sounds like, I mean, someone like him appreciated what actors were capable of taking creative risks. I mean, a lot of these shows that we've talked about, not just the storyline, but there were like risky plot elements. I, mean, I remember of an episode of Moonlighting in which Civil Shepherd and Bruce Willis 
they basically did Taming of the Shrew in an hour of moonlighting. I forget what the setup was, but they literally go back and they're wearing costumes. I think it's like imagined or something. They're doing Shakespeare on primetime television. And it's absolutely hilarious. And it's very clear that both of these actors completely understand the language and the dialogue. I think somebody who has to have an appreciation for risk-taking is like what's behind the creative energy that goes into something like that. So I want to ask you too about you know, he's not just a creative force with a lot of these films that he's doing. He's also part of the ABC Corporation, right? I mean, like, you know, it, it, derisively, some people would be like, yeah, he's a suit. But I mean, he's clearly he seems like more of one of the creative suits. But what I mean by that is that he has to answer not just for the creative production. He has to answer to the bottom line. He has to answer to marketing. He has to answer to the public. And you you, we, you talked about this a little bit. And I want to ask you to kind of dig into it more. When the day after is going to air, all of those different constituencies within the corporate ABC culture that he has to answer to are telling him, do not do this. Not only will it be a failure, but probably we're telling him it could be professionally ruinous and damaging to ABC. So talk about what you remember of when it's he believes deeply in taking this creative risk and the message of the film but all of the different headwinds that he had to face at the place where he worked. So uh, he is open in the years after the day after that Leonard Goldenson, the chairman of ABC was his only ally. And other than that, he was completely isolated that for a month before it aired, no one at ABC would talk to him, including his staff. And he felt just completely thrown under the bus and out on a limb, even though he knew he was responsible for dragging everybody there. Everyone was, was in this toxic stew because of my dad. It was his idea and he was the one pushing everyone to do it. But he was honest about how much of a hurricane it became and how it, the, the intensity of it really surprised him. He said, it was the beyond anything I've ever seen or ever known in my life. For a guy making a movie, like how could this be so, so difficult? He talked about how ABC is going to air this. And so World News Tonight, which is part of ABC, he's doing all these interviews in the month before it airs. And he's answering every question. He finally realizes like, this is crazy. He starts limiting the interview, starts limiting the questions. He's like, He's getting so agitated. He's getting physically sick. He's getting death threats. And like I said, no one at ABC is talking to him. And the week before he goes on, it airs, he goes on 60 Minutes. Jerry Falwell's on the same segment. He's saying it's propaganda. We're going to go after the advertisers who would support this, blah, blah, blah. And my father is asked at the end of the show, like, you're really going to air this. Like, it's worth like losing $7 million, even if you don't get enough advertisers. And he said, yes. So that was on like the Sunday night before November 20. So that would be, you know, November 13. And then on Friday, November 18, my father had gotten a request from the White House to change something in the film. And it's 48 hours to air. And my father's response was, tell them to fuck off. We're not touching the film. And within hours, 
someone from World News Tonight asks him for one more interview. And, oh, we just want to talk about the day after, you know, we're like ABC2, so come on, one more interview. And Ted Koppel had asked him to do a nightline. He'd said no. He was really shutting down and feeling like at this point, this is just diminishing returns. Like, I can't talk about this movie one more second. And what was going to happen, tick, 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 right over the weekend, the White House already tried to pressure him. And he said, you know, F off. And so he starts doing this interview with someone from World News Tonight. And they ask him, so did the White House ask you to make changes to the film like today? So it got leaked to to ABC News. <laughs> and my dad just said, no comment. And so it was, it was just unbelievable in terms of how alone and in a bunker he felt and that like no one was being loyal, nobody cared. And at the same time, he knew it was his fault, right? So it was such a conflict for him, a stew of feelings that he believed this project was worthwhile, but he knew he'd really dragged a lot of people through a lot to get there. And you can see, you and Nick Meyer talked about this. They held a conversation on ABC's Nightline, occasionally became something called Viewpoint. And they held a conversation about it afterwards. And they're the most articulate, they're experts on the panel, but they don't really know what to say about the movie. And I think that my father didn't care what the response would be. He just wanted it to happen. That it could go wherever it needed to go. He just wanted it to make air. And he knew he was causing a world of trouble in the making of this movie and pushing it to air. And that was his only goal. I, I don't know if there's ever been a major television film that is then followed by a panel which in which you have the Secretary of State being interviewed, <laughs> and then, you know, Henry Kissinger and Carl Sagan is on the panel, and this incredible kind of moment where everyone's gathered in their living rooms, quite literally in some cases. Uh, people got together to watch this movie in restaurants and bars and halls, and we kind of have this big national conversation about what we all just watched, almost as if we're kind of doing it in a classroom setting. Was that his idea? Did he want to do the panel? And did he think that that was helpful? The White House wanted to have a, let's talk about this okay. moment to calm the nation down. And so that's why the Secretary of State was dispatched to be the opening guest. It's so interesting just as for journalists listening to this conversation that you and I are having changes. Ted Koppel was so in control of that conversation. I mean, TV journalists say would never ask the kind of direct questions and follow up that Ted Koppel put these people through, including the Secretary of State. It's fascinating. It's just an experience to take in that whole segment. It's an hour long. And he does. He opens it like, look outside. There are trees in your yard. You know, the, the sun is going to come up tomorrow. We're all alive. Like it, it Just because they knew that it, everyone was going to be so shaken, that it was definitely the government's idea. ABC went along with it and thought like, yes, that's so great. We'll do that. We'll all have this like you know, national water cooler moment together. But no, it was, my dad did not say we all have to have a conversation that calms people down. It was like, I'm going to do this and blow your mind and y'all just do what you want with your mind blown. I mean, he literally, his quote was, 
I wanted people to know what decide what they were going to do about it. And so he just pushed it off a building and people had to deal with the consequences on the panel. People who are critical of the movie don't have a point about why the movie was wrong to air, why the movie was a mistake, why the movie was an outrage. Kissinger goes around and around. He basically says, everybody, we've had these statistics and this data about nuclear weapons for 30 years. I wrote a book 20 years ago saying blah, blah, blah. And it's just a bunch of people who were pissed off that the movie was made and aired, but they're not making the case that it shouldn't have been and that Americans shouldn't come to grip with this. And it's fascinating that, as you said, that we would have a giant sit-down post-mortem after a TV show, you know, let alone with someone from with the Secretary of State. Let's talk a bit about the legacy of this film, too, because it has a very powerful legacy, not just in the minds of people who saw it, but it arguably alters policy. I mean, it has a real impact on Ronald Reagan, you know, who sees the film. Talk a little bit about the legacy of the film and what did your dad share with you, if anything, about the way it did change people's minds? Because it seems like he succeeded pretty spectacularly. He said many times at that time that he was not pushing any kind of policy or outcome, but to bring Americans face to face with the horrors of nuclear war. But it is true that Reagan wrote in his diary that he was very shaken by this. And he did come with Mikhail Gorbachev years later to an arms reduction deal, the Intermediate Range and Nuclear Forces Treaty. And that's what's so interesting about what Nick Myers told you is that he wanted Reagan to lose re-election because he felt Reagan would because he was so associated with selling nuclear arms buildup and maybe this concept of a limited strike and a limited war. I love that quote that I used in my column when I wrote this on the anniversary that Myers said, you know, I did something different. I changed his mind. And they did. And But what's so interesting is that, again, my father's desire to tell this story was, it wasn't tied to an outcome. And that's what I think is so interesting about the creative process. Really creative people have an idea. They believe in the power of that idea. They will face all critics of that idea and do it anyway. And I think a lot more of us would be a lot more creative if we weren't tied to the outcome. And that's what's so amazing about his bravery and his courage in forcing this into reality is that it was important to tell this story, whether it ended up moving Ronald Reagan and thank God it did yeah, or not. One thing that's probably a real mark of distinction for the day after is that no one has ever tried to imitate that film. Like no one has made something in the style of the day after. I can't think of one. There's a British film called Threads that is sort of similar to this. I think we're around the same time. But like nobody has been like, yeah, let's redo the day after. And it's not because the threat of nuclear war is, you know, no longer a possibility. I mean, it's been rekindled and our anxiety is about that because of the war in Ukraine. But it almost just kind of feels like it was like the first and last word on the subject. I mean, I don't know that anybody could add to the subject beyond what the film did, which I mean, I suppose is a terrible thing to say as a creative person, there's always more to say, but 
there's a kind of finality to that film, isn't there? And it just kind of stands on its own. I think you're so right. And that's why I said at the start of our conversation that it's so weird to me that if you were not around at that time that you wouldn't know about it because it it is kind of the last word because people have not wanted to revisit this. And in our, our country right now, we face an extraordinarily high threat of nuclear war. The doomsday clock, which was created in 1947, is down to 90 seconds to midnight. People can read about the concept of the doomsday clock. The Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists are the ones that monitor it. And my father and everyone who made the day after Nick Meyer, who you interviewed, Ed Hume, the writer, Nick Meyer was the director, and my father were recently honored by the Future of Life Institute. And so was War Games. So these two films were honored for, quote, preventing nuclear war through storytelling. And so Walter Parks and Lawrence Lasker's writers of War Games, and then, as I said, Nick Meyer, Ed Hume, and my father. And how could that be? I mean, you mentioned Threads, and that's apparently very dramatic, well-made, scary. But why are people not taking the chance on more projects about this? Because they obviously think there isn't an audience. No one wants to hear about this. But in our national conversation, it, no one on Capitol Hill is talking about this. We're not having conversations among policymakers and, and lawmakers about the threat of, of nuclear winter. So it it's so surreal. It's sort of like the final word, the first and last attempt to show us what this means and, and then that it's just sort of been buried. It's very, very strange. And one of the things that I think is really important about the film and the way it tells the story, and I think, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I think that your father had a, a role in this too, but it's not clear in the film who, quote unquote, started the war. As in it's, I mean, there's the, 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 the plot has this very tense buildup between U.S. and Soviet forces in Eastern Europe, and it's clear that they are coming into physical contact and conflict. But it's not clear who fires the first shot. But once one missile goes up, another goes up, and suddenly there's a massive exchange of missiles. But I always thought that that was an important part of the story and that it's it didn't approach the subject as trying to say, you know, the Soviets are the ones who are going to start this or Ronald Reagan and the Americans are the ones who are going to, going to start it. It's not even clear to the people in the film if they know who started it. It just kind of begins and it's almost like this madness that's taking over and it implicates everyone. It, was that something that was important to him to not frame it as good guy, bad guy? That was completely intentional and it was a red line. So while the government was through different ways during the making of this film, trying to tweak this and tweak that, there was always the, the push to make it seem like the Soviets launched first. And Meyer and my father and everyone making the movie were emphatic that the entire purpose of this movie is to just be that person in Lawrence, Kansas, who is a part of an explosion or is far enough away that you're a survivor and you're going to die of radiation poisoning, and you're in a post-attack, every man for himself, you know, horror. And that it has nothing to do with which country did what, and which country would be more likely to do what. And obviously, 
if the movie had had a plot where the Soviets struck us, it would have emboldened the proliferators, right? It would have emboldened the side that they would say, see, we're going to get attacked. And so we need to make sure that we're dominant and we need more weapons. We need them sooner. We need to keep operating them. And so that was really a red line. That was like, you couldn't have the movie without that. It had to be completely neutral and a mystery of, about how it happened. I'm curious, what influence, if any, did he have on your decision to become a journalist and to start writing about politics and public policy? Well, I really think my father and I share that storytelling passion. And I started out in journalism writing features out in suburban Northern Virginia. And I think I got into politics because it's like sports, you know, it's just such a human drama. And the game changes, but you have a repeat of the same kinds of themes, you know, human behavior doesn't change and power corrupts. And it just fascinated me. Of course, now it's really different. It's, it's not, <laughs> this is not what I signed up for Shane and it's not what I got into. I mean, politics now is just completely different than what I you know covered in the start and middle of my career. So I, it's weird, but my father, we're both people, people. We love people and we love stories. We love characters and archetypes. And it was something that we shared and something he understood in me that every day in the news business is different. And like that, I wanted that excitement. I needed that excitement. You know, I was afraid of being bored and so was my father, but because my father was so creative, I'm still really inspired by him. And I want to do at some point, some more kind of, you know, creative work because I feel like He's sort of in my ear about that. My journalism path makes sense to him. He died before Donald Trump came down the escalator six months before. He had told us when we were little that the television in the hands of a demagogue was very dangerous and that it would happen one day. So it's very strange. I'm so glad he was not here for all of this and not going through it. But I hope someday, I think the most simple way to put it is, you know, to not be a filmmaker, but to just have a chapter where I do a little, you know, something a little more creative because I feel like he so inspired me that way. Your dad was in New York and, you know, probably moved in a lot of circles that Trump would have moved in. Did he ever run into Trump or did he have an awareness of him when he went on The Apprentice and became this huge television celebrity, which of course I think is a direct line to his presidency? I don't have any actual my dad and Donald Trump connection he never said anything about him. But, you know, I grew up in New York and we were pre-apprentice, just all like universally grossed out by Donald Trump. Like that just, if you grew up in New York and you didn't come to know him on a reality TV show, like you knew he was just like this trashy guy and always reinventing himself and trying to get himself out of like, you know, the next bad chapter of bankruptcy or whatever it was. So it's, it is interesting. I think Americans who knew Trump before The Apprentice have a totally different view of him than those who discovered him on The Apprentice. But again, my father so appreciated the power of television to sort of reinvent people and to completely convince that the, the television is so convincing and can tell a story used specifically that it creates illusion, 
creates illusion. It can. Not my father's television work, but you know. But yeah, he seems pretty astute to that. And your dad, I think he was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame shortly before he passed away. As he looked back across the entire arc of the career, I'm sure the day after held a special place in that. But like, were any of his final reflections on that film and the legacy of it that you recall? I'm just very moved by a memory of being at the Television Hall of Fame, the dinner when he was um, inducted in. And he was in chemotherapy treatments and a little bit frail. And, but he was spirited, you know, that night. And he gave a, an amazing speech. And in it, he just, he talked about social justice, talked about his father's legal career and him representing defendants. And he talked about the power of ideas. He talked about how if you have a good idea, you have to do whatever you can to see it through no matter what people say and like believe in your ideas. So it was both about, it was about television. It was about his career. It was about the creative process. He sort of packed all of these incredible messages into this one speech. It was really wonderful. And he really rose to the occasion. It obviously meant so much to us and it was amazing. It was just amazing. Yeah. Sounds like it was quite a valedictory address. That's, that's great. Well, it is our tradition on, on Shatter for our last question for our guests is I have here what we call the chatterbox, where I'm going to reach in and ask you a question that was written previously. I'm going to select this at random. Okay, this is going totally off topic. There's actually a question about nuclear weapons in this box, which I thought maybe you would get, but you did not get it. We really do choose it at random. <laughs> I mean, what country other than your own would you most like to live and why? I'm sorry to be cheesy, but Italy. Yeah. What about Italy? I've decided that Italy has more treasures than all the other countries that I've visited or want to visit. There's just, I feel like I, before I die, I will never finish with Italy. There's just so many different parts of it. There's so much to behold. And this has nothing to do with the fact that my baby child, my junior in college, left yesterday to live in Florence until June 21. Oh. Um, wow. But it is the it is the country that it is my answer, just having nothing to do with her going to Florence. I I went there with my parents years ago, and then we went as a family several months ago last May, and I just was blown away. And so again, I just don't feel that I could be finished with Italy. That's great. Well, hopefully I, it is a big year ahead for you, for me, for all of us in this business. I hope you get some time to go be with your daughter, to decompress in Italy. <laughs> Maybe you want to think about Italian citizenship, depending on how things go in November. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, that's great. But A.V. Sutter, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about your dad and sharing these great memories of him and just really the powerful contribution he made to American culture and to American discourse and the way that we talk about these issues. I mean, the conversation as heated and as frantic and fraught as it was around the day after, it was a national moment in which people came together, I think, in a genuine spirit of goodwill and had a big conversation about something really, really important. And it's something that we don't do enough of today. And obviously, your father played a really significant role in that. So a credit to him and thank you for coming on here and talking about him. Oh, this means so much to me. So I, I just can't thank you enough. Thank you, Shane. That was Chatter, 
a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.